It's, it's great to be back in Sydney. Uh, I was in Canberra this week. I had a great a couple of days down in Canberra visiting a bunch of people that are actually asking us to plant a Sovereign Grace Church down in Canberra. Uh, so Dave Taylor and I went down um, for a couple of days, Thursday through Saturday, and hung out with this awesome couple that we're friends with and stayed in their home, drove around Canberra, met with some leaders and pastors and people who were trying to see church planting happen in Canberra. And um, it was awesome. I mean, Canberra's a great great city. Uh, it's, you've got, uh, it, you know, I haven't been there since like year five, right? So <laughs> since Questacon and all that. And it's, you know, the, the capital is right in the middle with all the beautiful buildings and then surrounded by mountain and country. And yeah, so I'd like to announce that I'm going to Canberra to plant a church. Uh, <laughs> no, but I do think, uh, I, I think the Lord may be in it. And I, I would uh, encourage you, even though it will hurt, I would encourage you to start praying and just asking the Lord to help us plant a church there, to raise up a pastor, and potentially to start praying, Lord, do you want me to go? Um, some of you might need to go to Canberra and help us plant the gospel down there. There's plenty of gospel preaching churches in Canberra, but we met with guys who are helping lead more church planting, and they were saying there is not enough. The, the population growth is, you know, 10% of Canberra every year grows. We need more churches, and we need them now. And so they were like, come down. So start praying. We need a pastor, we need a planter, and we need people. Uh, and so maybe the Lord will use you. We are going to continue in our series this morning, preaching from Matthew's gospel. Last week, we saw Jesus finally enter Jerusalem. We're entering into the last week of Jesus's life. And we saw, as was alluded to in our amazing time of, of worship and singing, <clears throat> that Jesus enters Jerusalem with humble authority comes authoritatively as the king and, and the son of God, but he comes on a donkey. He comes with the praises of the people, and then he comes with this authority and he clears the temple. He comes with humility as he heals the lame and the blind in the temple courts, but he comes with authority when the, the, the leaders address him and try and rebuke him. Jesus isn't just humble and he isn't just authoritative, he's both. And he calls us to join in that chorus of praising him with joyful submission. And then, as Jesus causes a bit of a ruckus in Jerusalem over a couple of days, the religious leaders are not on board. They're not fans of what Jesus is doing. And so they come up to question him. They come up to debate with him. Uh, and that is going to be part of uh, the larger section we're doing today. Uh, and then we're going to pause on that debate head towards when Jesus dies for the next number of weeks, and we'll come back to it later and look at some of those other questions. But for today, we're going to begin our journey through Scripture in Matthew 21, verse 23. So if you have a Bible, please read along. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, oh, if we say from heaven... He will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, 
We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's begin in prayer. Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching and reading of your word this morning. And in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. That question of authority and the source of authority is a pertinent question. In a world where all truth seems relative and facts are debatable and trust is eroded, it can make it very difficult to know who to believe and what to do about what people say. One politician says this and the other the exact opposite, both making truth claims. One health professional says this and the other's the exact opposite, both appealing to their authoritative position. This is not just a modern problem though. We don't, you know, it's peculiar to our age and our postmodern feeling and our move away from absolute truths, but this is an age-old problem. Because as human beings, we are born ignorant. By God's design and exacerbated by the fall, we aren't omniscient. We don't know everything. We can't possibly know it all. And so, in a sense, some of us, in some way, we are left in the dark. We need knowledge. We need data. We need insight. We need the truth. But we don't have it in full. And the only way we can make sense of the world that we live in and practically live in it each day and each week and each month and each year, the only way to actually do that is we have to trust others. We have to trust the facts and the opinions and the policies of those who are around us to some degree. All of us do it, whether we want to or not. We live within a system. We live by opinions and rules that we trust from other people. We follow their advice as authoritative This dilemma is faced by us from the mundane to the eternal. And it was faced, as we saw in our passage, by those in Jesus' time too. If you put yourself in the position of these religious authorities, can you imagine how difficult it would have been to to really figure out, is Jesus God? (laughs) Is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus who he said he is? you imagine how difficult it would have been for them to know, should I actually trust him? Because to trust him would look like getting rid of almost everything I know about God and how to worship him. It would have been threatening. It would have been destabilizing and incredibly uncomfortable. Jesus was amazing, no doubt. They never doubted his miracles. They just doubted the source of his miracles, where they came from. They never doubted his authority, but they doubted Where did you get it from? Why are you walking around with such authority? Where does it come from? He was holy, yet infuriating. And so they were stuck in a pickle. Do we trust him or not? Do we follow him or not? Do we obey him or not? And that is why they ask, and though probably not with full integrity, they're not seeking, it's probably more aggressive. By what authority? Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And perhaps this is a pickle that you find yourself in, a problem that you may have this morning. You're obviously here in our little church 
because you're intrigued by Jesus. You may even be a baptized Christian, a member of our church. But you may still be wondering, how do I know? How can I know? Is it really true? Is Jesus really the one I should throw my lot in with? And even more deeply than having certainty, you may want to know, is Jesus really from God? Does he have God's authority? Or is he just another charismatic and powerful teacher? One who brings a good way of life, but not God himself. Is Christianity man-made or is it eternal? You would have noticed that in the story, when these kind of questions come up, Jesus doesn't answer them. He often puts the question back on the people. In this moment, Jesus could have given us a stirring address, couldn't he? He could have given us a three-point epic sermon explaining his authority, logically, powerful. But instead, he gets to the heart of the matter, which really is the heart of whether we can trust Jesus is, is not ultimately and finally about the facts and the truth and the claims. It's about our own hearts. Are we willing to trust and follow and so he asked them this question, who do you think John the Baptist was? Was he from God or was he from man? Now, John the Baptist was a famous preacher that went around saying to all of Israel, you must repent and change your life. And droves of people recognized, they fell under conviction from the Holy Spirit and realized they were living a life that didn't match up with what the Old Testament had to say. They realized, I need to repent. I need to change from the way I'm living. The, the greed, the lust, the pride, the, the jealousy, the anger, all of that. I need to turn and turn myself back to God. And so John would baptize them in his camel hair and locusts and honey and all that. He would baptize them and they'd come up out of the water with this sense of purification and cleansing. And all the crowds were following and loving him. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders wouldn't come. They wouldn't repent. They didn't think they had anything to repent of. Yet thousands of people are coming to John, leaving the Pharisees and following his way. And then John starts to say, what does he say? Follow Jesus. John starts to say, oh, I'm going to decrease. You now see this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, follow him. And the crowds shift from John and shift towards Jesus. And so now the Pharisees are left Crowds to John, now to Jesus. What are we meant to do? And they had an opportunity. They had a chance, like we all have at various points in our life, to humble ourselves and repent and go, we're wrong. This is what God's doing. I'm going to follow. But instead, they rejected John. And Jesus knew this. And that's why he puts the question to them. And he puts it to them in such a way that it puts them in this awkward position. They have to choose allegiance and whatever they choose will get them in trouble. If they say that John was from God, then they're forced to then follow John, repent, and start following Jesus. If they choose that John was just from man, well, then the crowds are against them. It'd be like a politician being against same-sex marriage today. He might believe it might be true, but everyone's going to be against them. And so for fear of the crowd and for fear of changing their life, they decide to play the politician's game. I've been in Canberra, straight down the middle. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we haven't yet decided. Oh, we'll work on that policy. And so Jesus 
leaves them in the dark, doesn't answer them. Could have then gone, okay, well, let me explain to you how I am really from God. But instead, he leaves them in the dark and the question presses in on them, just like it presses in on each and every single one of us. Do you really believe who I am? Are you willing to get off the fence and choose a way, either to reject and say, no, you are not God, or to say, yes, you are, and I must follow you. And Jesus then goes on from this moment to tell three powerful stories that will illustrate what's going on in the heart and lives of these Pharisees. And they all have one unmistakable point about the nature of who Jesus really is. And these three stories will say who Jesus is and the consequences of our choice about how we define that. These three stories will ask us to ask this, will I trust and believe in him or will I reject him? And there's no middle way in any of these stories. And the one point that, fl that flows throughout each of the stories is this, our eternal future stands or falls on how we receive Jesus. Your eternal future stands or falls on how you respond to Jesus. The stakes are high this morning. So we're going to go through each one of these stories and read it and discuss it, and then I'm going to put it all together at the end and, and preach on how we are meant to respond rightly to Christ. And whether you're a Christian or not, there's something in all of this. So be leaning in as we hear the master storyteller. And imagine the scene. Remember, he's in the temple, this huge, beautiful structure. The crowd's around him. He's just cleared them out. There's possibly hundreds, if not thousands of people. But Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. He's condemning them through these stories. So let's have a look. Verse 28 to 32. Um, our story number one, the parable of the two sons. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. Jesus knows about parenting. <laughs> but afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Again, see how Jesus uses questions. They said, the first. Okay, it's not an answer they want. They want the answer they want is, I will go, sir, and they go and do it. But Jesus doesn't give them that option. I will go and don't do it, or I won't go, okay, I go and do it. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Ow. <laughs> For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The first son represents the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. And note, the first son is the older son, which is the, the, the position of honor and pride in that society. They say no, 
but eventually they go and do it. So they've lived a life of rebellion, but eventually they hear and they go, you know what, I need to change my life, and they do. And that's what the tax collectors and sinners did, and they, they followed John, then they followed Jesus. But the second son is like the Pharisees. Yes, I will follow you, Lord. And maybe they think they do, but, but they don't. You see, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you tick on a census. It doesn't matter what you even commit to as you become a member of a church. If you say you will follow God and believe in God and don't do it, you are a disobedient son, a disobedient daughter. And Jesus condemns them. He rebukes them for their lack of faith. And part of one of the, the, the proofs that the Pharisees should have believed in John the Baptist was the fruit of his preaching. John's preaching was able to take tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst of the worst, and bring them back to God. The Pharisees should have been loving John the Baptist. Oh, finally, you're bringing the people back in. You're bringing the lost home. But instead, they hate him. They want him gone. If you're someone here who knows about Christianity, you kind of think it's good, but you haven't yet started following Jesus, look at, look at the fruit of Christianity in the world. Of course, there's much problems because sinners, we, are, um, we follow Jesus. He's the perfect one. But one of the fruits you can see is whether or not Christianity is true is the fruit it has produced. All of Western civilization, morality and ethics, justice, the hospital system, education, the fact that human beings have dignity, value and worth, that doesn't just arrive naturally. That's not what happens in nature. In nature, we kill and destroy one another. We enslave people. We put people to death. We leave babies and forsake them because they're too inconvenient to our life. But Christianity, the doctrines of Christ, lead us to this position of beauty and truth that we all long for. So Jesus would say, look at the fruit of my preaching today and follow me. Your eternal future stands or falls on how you receive Jesus. So Jesus begins it here, but now he looks more at the consequences. What is this eternal future? What will happen depending on what we decide about Jesus? Leads to story number two, the parable of the tenants. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So you picture ancient Israel, you've got these vineyards beautiful on slopes and um, agrarian world, you've got this owner who's wealthy that sets up this beautiful vineyard. It's going to take four years before it produces any fruit. That's how long it would take. And so he sets it up and he puts these workers, these, these, he pays them to come in and tend it for four years with the hope and with the expectation and actually with the contract that they will give him the fruit at the end of the four years. He pays them, they give him the fruit. And this, this image of a vineyard is unmistakable to the religious leaders as a picture of Israel. This is them. 
This is their story. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel is represented in different images, but one of them is, is a vine and indeed a vineyard at various points too. And so it would have been not hard for them to see, oh, I think he's potentially talking about us here. He goes on. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants, that would be in the Old Testament, the prophets, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first prophet after prophet went to Israel. King after king went to Israel. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Unmistakably, Jesus is predicting his very own death in the next coming days. The son of the vineyard owner coming to the vineyard. And where was Jesus crucified? Outside the walls of Jerusalem. Killed. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Again, another question. And they condemn themselves with their answer. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants. He will give him fruits in their seasons. And here Jesus is, is using this moment to teach the disciples and the crowds and later us and the, the first century church that God's plan for Israel has not failed, but there is a time of judgment upon them. That they have rejected him, the leaders have rejected him, and so they're going to be destroyed. They are going to be, if they don't repent, they are going to be destroyed, as, as it says, and he will give the tenacity to other people. That is, the openness of the gospel will come to all. And why? Why will they be rejected? Well, Jesus makes it very clear, verse 42 and following. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Speaking of himself, he is the cornerstone. Rejected, but he becomes the foundation of the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 43, I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Humble Jesus, we love that, but this is authoritative, powerful, judgmental words. The kingdom of God will be taken from the religious leaders and given to a new people. The word there is ethnos. It's a, it's a word which means a new people group. Um, it doesn't just mean Gentiles. It means anyone that it me really basically means the church, the new church, the new covenant people of God. The old covenant is ending in Jesus and a new covenant is coming, a new way of relating to God, not through the temple, not through the sacrifices, not through the priests, not through the leaders, but through the cornerstone. And he will give this new people to, or this new land to a new people. And that's us. We're involved in this. We're the fulfillment of this story. 
And it's, it's a tragic story, really. Crushed. It's a horrible image. Verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was thinking and speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So they know what's going on. They, they see it. <laughs> they understand. But they can't do anything about it. Instead of falling under conviction of sin, instead of repenting, instead of saying, oh, we got you wrong, Jesus, they harden and they go into attack mode. And as a preacher of the gospel, it, it's such a tragedy and a shame when I, I preach week in, week out, and you know various people aren't Christians yet, and they hear, and you hear, and maybe you're here today, you're not yet a Christian, and you hear these words and you think, oh, wouldn't be good for that person, but I'm fine. But if you are not yet a Christian, this, this passage is a, is a warning to you. Don't be like these religious leaders who fall upon the cornerstone. Have the capstone of the, of the archway fall upon you and crush you. Be spiritually sensitive to what's going on. Be aware that perhaps the Lord is speaking to you. Because your eternal future stands or falls on how you receive Jesus. Finally, one more story. Verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1 to 10. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Right? So we can see it again. God the Father, the king, the son is coming into play here. Jesus is the son of God. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So the prophets, the servants go out, they prepare. John the Baptist goes out, prepare. The Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. Come into the kingdom, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is near, the message is out. But they would not come. Verse 4, again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited. Notice, you know, you might see a lot of judgment in this passage, but don't miss the language here. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Don't miss the mercy. They've already rejected him. To reject a wedding invitation in Middle Eastern culture is to reject the entire family, to reject the person. But yet he comes back again in mercy. He says, come, come. I've, I've gone, I've slaughtered oxen and fattened cars. I've the best of the best. We've got beef ribs and brisket. It's here, just come. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm. Another to his business. Caught up with the life caught up with the cares of the world. Not enough time to repent and believe. Not enough time to come to the kingdom of God. I've got things to do. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Again, another part of the Israelite story is they killed the prophets. So the king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. 
perhaps a predictive prophecy to what's going to happen in Jerusalem in AD 70. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, this story is hyperbolic. It's not a true account. This is not how it happened. It's to drive home the realities that Jesus is trying to show to these people that think, by default, I'm in. By default, I'm a child of God. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm in the kingdom. I'm going to heaven. I'm good with God. He's driving it home so that they don't miss the point that your eternal future stands or falls on how you respond to Jesus. It's how you respond to Jesus that counts. So how are we meant to respond rightly? I, I know most of us know the answer, but it, it's worth dwelling on. It's worth focusing on so that we know what we're meant to do and we know what we're meant to call other people to do. We don't want to get trapped in, in the ways of this culture that everything is yeah, pretty good. Like, oh, that's good for you that you, you like that and that and you mix and blend and you're sort of half in, half out. No, no. We need to know that our eternal future stands or falls on how you receive Jesus. That he is the authority. That he really is the king, so we really should follow him. So how do we know? What are we meant to do? You've got the two sons, one obeys the father, the other who won't. The workers who reject the father and the son and the land gets given away. The wedding guests who reject the invitation and so a whole new group of guests are welcomed in. And the one unmissable point throughout these stories is this. If you reject Jesus the son, you reject God the father. You can't be for God and against Jesus. You can't be, like, I believe in God. I like God. I like a being. I like a, a thing in the universe. But I'm not so crash out on Jesus. I'm not so crash out on King Jesus and following him and obeying him and submitting my life and my money and my sexuality and my career and everything, my parenting, my marriage, my time. Every, I don't like King Jesus, but I like God. You know, this power. For the Israelites, it would have been, you know, God of the Old Testament, Moses and the law. But for us, it's not like that. It's, it's just God. He's so loving and kind. And there's this universal power. These three stories. If you reject Jesus the Son, you reject God the Father. If you reject Jesus the Son, you will be rejected by God the Father. If you reject Jesus the Son, you reject God the Father. If you reject Jesus the Son, you will experience the rejection of God the Father. The three stories, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom, but the disobedient son doesn't. The father will send soldiers to kill the tenants, and a new, new tenants will come in. The father punishes and destroys the city of those who reject the son's invitation to the son's wedding, and a new group of people are brought in. 
And notice the language, the stone falls and you're crushed. You'll be thrown into outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a heavy message. But it is the message of salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And so we must go out. We must boldly, controversially, painfully tell people it's Jesus and Jesus alone and lead people to Jesus and Jesus alone and not be content with them having a vague spirituality and comforting them that surely God will be loving to them. No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone in Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone that we are saved. So that's the, the negative side. You must respond to Jesus rightly. You must accept him as king and as friend. It's not all doom and gloom. Because here's the, the positive side. If you accept Jesus, you accept God. If you accept Jesus, God will accept you. You're invited into the kingdom. You're given a share in the vineyard. You'll be invited into the wedding feast of the Son. Your eternal future stands secure. Secure. If you come to Jesus, and if you have come to Jesus, and so many of you, I know for sure, you have come to Jesus, you are accepted finally and certainly and definitely by God the Father. And not only accepted, you're given the kingdom, the vineyard, and the wedding feast, and you will experience joy forevermore. That's such good news. It's such comfort. It's so clear. There's no vagueness. You've got Jesus. You've got God. You've got the blessings. You're in. And so although there's harshness in the passage, there's so much comfort and assurance because if you come to him, you're in. Jesus said this earlier in his ministry in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you do not believe, you will thirst and hunger for all eternity. If you believe, if you come to Jesus, you will never be cast out. If you come rightly. But Jesus does add one final warning. The warning is this. It's possible to think you're in, to respond to the invitation and be in the presence of the wedding. But if you're not wearing the right clothes, if you haven't actually met the requirements, you will be kicked out. All are invited, but not all are automatically in the feast. It's a hard little section but we'll read 11 to 14 it's there to jar us a little bit it's there to make us go okay it's not just automatic still We're, how do i get in how, how am i sure but when the king ca came in to look at the guests he saw there a man who had no wedding garment and he said to him friend how did you get in here without a wedding garment and he was speechless had no answer then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. 
you go to an ancient wedding in, in Israel, you would don your best clothes. You wouldn't come in your work clothes. Um, and even in this story, when it seems like a rush invitation, there's no sense that they can't go home first and, and get their clothes and then prepare themselves to honor the son of the king. You know, if you were invited to the queen's wedding, I probably wouldn't come in chinos and a shirt. I might take five minutes, might be a little bit late, but I'd go get a tux and I'd go to, you know, Prince, whoever's wedding. Um, is it, they're all married, but anyway. Um, <laughs> I would go. That's what you would do because you, to, to demonstrate that you understand what you're coming to. And so the king comes in and he sees someone not wearing the garments. They've responded to the message. They're in the presence, but they haven't actually met the requirements. They haven't come to a wedding. They've turned up for BYO lunch, uh, so to speak, like for our church. They, they don't get it. They don't get who the son is. And it's not entirely clear exactly what Jesus is referring to in this section, but the point is this, unmistakably, there's still requirements. Don't just assume you're in because you're in a Christian family. Don't just assume you're in because, you know, you turned up to church this week. Don't just assume you're in because you, you like, prayed a prayer one time, but you never lived it out. Don't just assume you're in because you heard an invitation and you rocked up. The, the message is open to all, but it's open to all who will repent and believe. So the way to get the wedding garments is not by like cleaning and getting a bit of, you know, I don't know, what's that, preen or something and trying to clean up yourself or anything like that. No, it, this is the, the message of the gospel. The only way to get those clean wedding garments is to confess your sin, to repent and to receive the very righteousness of Christ and to put on his righteousness so you can be in the wedding. Philippians 3, 7-9 explains this so perfectly. This is the Apostle Paul who used to be one of these Pharisees. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Note this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If the king came to you and said, why should I let you into heaven? The answer isn't, oh, well, I'm a member of Song Grace Church Parramatta. I took communion. I was baptized as a baby. It's none of those answers. The answer is Christ. I believe in Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ because I put my faith in him. And you promise that if you confess your sins, you'll be forgiven. You promise that I put my faith in Christ. I receive his righteousness. That's the answer. If you don't know that answer, if you had to stand before God today, if you, you know, who knows what might happen to your life. It seems like if you're 52 right now, you're in danger. Uh, you should be thinking, oh my goodness, what could happen? I could meet God at any moment. What would you say? Every member of our church, what would you say? Don't just assume it. Would you be able to say, Christ, I trust in him. I'm clothed in his righteousness. I don't trust in myself. Everything else is lost. It's him alone. And if you can say that, then all that comfort from before is on you. If you can't say that, then all the judgment from before is on you. So come to Christ. Come to the feast and enjoy it through him. If you're not yet a Christian, all you have to do is during the final song, 
pray to God and say, I'm sorry for my sin. Will you please forgive me? And would you help me to live for you? And then tell someone and we'll help you figure out what it actually looks like to live a Christian life. But it begins there. So bring it all together. By what authority do you do these things? Jesus doesn't give us an easy answer. He shows us through these stories that he is authoritative, that it all stands or falls on him and the consequences are eternal. Our eternal future, my eternal future, stands or falls on how we receive Jesus. So receive Jesus. Enjoy him. Trust in him. Rest in him. And prepare your hearts for the feast. I'm particularly looking forward to the beef ribs in heaven. I think they're going to be fantastic. I'm not quite sure what oxen taste like, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm interested to see what the wedding feast will be like when we reign forever with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so set your hope, your future, on that beautiful, glorious, inviting reality by trusting in Jesus today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you have saved us through Jesus Christ, that we can know today we will be in the feast because we have repented of our sin. We've trusted in your Son. Our eternity is secure. Lord, if there's anyone here now who stands outside of your salvation, would you put upon them the convicting work of your Holy Spirit to convict them that they need salvation and that they would turn to you right now and become a Christian once and for all, be baptized and enter in with the, the wedding garments ready to feast with you forever. And Lord, would you send us out to go and proclaim this message, this singular message to our friends and families. Help us to love them enough to tell them the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.